Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Like many people these days, University College London geographer Mark Maslin talks a lot about the Anthropocene, the new geological epoch defined by the unique impact of human activity on the planet. What is it exactly? When did it start? And what does it mean? Not surprisingly, much of Mark's work centers around climate change, and much of it is naturally deeply alarming. But for Mark, it's not all doom and gloom. Like any scientist, he's a realist. Having become convinced by the overwhelming evidence around us that we are now in the Anthropocene, Mark focuses much of his time and attention on the vital and often overlooked question, what kind of Anthropocene do we actually want? Had you always been interested in science from a young age, or was that something that came later? Was it influenced by a particularly important uh, and influential teacher? How did that all come about for you? So I'm of a certain generation whereby we only have three channels on TV. And so, of course, uh, one of them was BBC One. And uh, in the mid-70s, the first Life on Earth series by David Attenborough came out. So I was at an age, so I was then about eight, taking this on board, so this incredible flagship sort of program showing science at its highest level. We also had a program called Horizon, and Horizon uh, still runs today, is a science program. But in the 70s, it was pitched at above university level. And so as an eight-year-old, I would devour these uh, sort of like hour-long sort of like uh, impenetrable science programs and not understand them. I also have, of course, a brother, and my parents uh, had a problem. What do you do with two boys who are fractious, who fight, on a wet Sunday afternoon in London? Uh, So they used to get in their clapped-out Cortina and drive us down to the Science Museum or the Naturist Museum and literally throw us in there. And therefore, my whole youth was based on the idea of understanding science through these beautiful and amazing museums and also then Life on Earth and Horizon. And I think it was quite early on, so it was definitely before I left uh, junior school. So about age 11, I had decided I was going to be a scientist. Wasn't quite sure which one, though. What about your brother? Was he influenced in the same way? No, interestingly enough, my my brother uh, went down a slightly different route, and uh, of course he's become an accountant. So um, again, the same influences clearly don't uh, push people in the same direction. It's not a one-to-one map. (laughs) No, (laughs) otherwise we'd all be scientists watching uh, David Attenborough. Yeah, or we'd all be accountants. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you said you weren't entirely certain which type of scientist you wanted to be. Did they all hold equal allure for you? I know you went into physical geography later and we'll yep. talk a little bit about that, but were you particularly fascinated by the evolution of the earth and earth systems and rocks and how the solar system formed uh, or, or volcanoes or, or, or was it 
Big Bang cosmology or, or, or what? I think I had two areas that I was interested in. The first was, of course, space, because uh, in the uh, late mid to late 70s, we were all still with this sort of buoyant idea of the space race. We were going to go and live on uh, Mars and the moon. This was only going to be a couple of decades. I would be an adult and I would be having space trips. So this, this was in the psyche of my generation. We also then, I, I was looking around, and again, it was the fascination about how everything fitted together. Because I'm a systems person. I, I love trying to work out how things fit together. And so from school, I was starting to get this idea that sort of like the atmosphere is attached to the land, which is attached to the oceans. And it was that sort of system that sort of started to really engage me. And that's where my studies started to go and why I went off to university to do both geography and geology at the same time. Mm. But at the back of my mind, it was always, well, hang on, we're all going to be in space. So that's my default. If, if, if we can all be astronauts, I'm going to be an astronaut. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out like that. Was there ever a time, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, I want to jump back, but was there ever a time when you recognized that, that, uh, that you weren't going to be an astronaut or you weren't going to be able to partake of that particular direction? Or were you already too immersed in, in, in geography and geology and so forth at that point? I think it was in my 20s that that enthusiasm, that excitement about the actual space race. And I think it was when this, uh, the space shuttle program closed down, that suddenly you could almost hear this science door slamming. And I think for me, even though I'd gone on a completely different route, there was a collective sigh around uh, science going, oh, does that mean we're not? Because again, science and NASA and all of that have been pushing the frontiers of science in direction, or in one direction. So we felt quite right to push it in other directions at the same time. And so I think that was quite a shock to people. I don't think they necessarily saw it at the time. But again, we still hanker after that excitement of the space race to actually get out there to push those frontiers whether it happens to be into space or it happens to be into the deep ocean wherever we haven't been we really want to go yeah. that's what makes us humans so a notion of exploring yeah um you mentioned your parents dragging their fractious children to <laughs> science museums yes um which is presumably in your case, was an effective way of dealing with things that may be somewhat unorthodox. There are all sorts of other things that yeah. one, one can do to subdue uh, <laughs> difficult children. Um, but I, I'm guessing there's more to it than that in terms of the intellectual encouragement that your parents were giving you towards science or towards those sorts of intellectual activities. Was there uh, a clear sense of endorsement that that's an appropriate thing to be doing? Was there a sense of wonder? Did you talk about science around the dinner table? Was there any of that sort of thing? I think the key thing that my parents did was just open up the way. Um, they were always very supportive, but they had no concept of what I was doing. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to university, and therefore I was ploughing a new field that completely uh, um, against the grain of the whole of my previous uh, family. However, they wouldn't stop me. But they always said, well, look, if you don't want to do that, there's always other options. So they were always very 
supportive and therefore ready to catch me. And they keep looking at me at each stage of sort of like going off to university, nodding at me, then getting sort of like uh, the top first in my year, then nodding at me again, yeah, yeah. Then going off to Cambridge again, yeah, yeah. And, and, and literally what has happened in my family is that it doesn't actually matter what I do. My parents just go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there, there is, they don't have any expectations. Well, clearly you're an accountant, so there you go. <laughs> Well, yes. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because I don't have, my parents didn't set any expectations, but it also means that I can't achieve anything because there's no expectations to compare myself with. So, yeah, I... But was there a particular interest on their part in science per se, or was it just a, a good thing to be doing on Sunday afternoons to keep, were they... Did they also enjoy these television shows that you were talking about? Were they also uh, avid followers of the space race or of, uh, of the latest, greatest thing that was happening in science? Or was there not so much of that type of enthusiasm? So when you only have three channels right. uh, and, <laughs> and your parents, of course, are in control of the TV, so cool. the viewing was controlled. So things like, I remember... Uh, Horizon, the science program, because my father was always into understanding science. On a Sunday night, we used to get the money program because my father was uh, really interested in how to actually manage our, our limited finances. And so all of those sort of programs, so more, our, my family's more BBC Two than BBC One, which meant that sort of like soap operas and things like that just didn't really come into my family's psyche. Um, and they're also very good about trying to give my brother and I tasters. So when they could afford it, we went to a classical concerts or we would go to the theater. And so what they'd give us is just little tasters of things out there, um, which was as much as they could do with their limited finance, but it was just enough to give my brother and I a view of a different view of the world. Yeah. and allow us to actually see that there were things beyond what we were doing and therefore we could actually make our own way in the world. Did you have a particularly influential teacher when you were in high school that, that influenced you to study physical geography? And uh, You went to University of Bristol, right? I did, yes. Um, did, you, did you have some formative influences in high school or was this more or less a trajectory that you were independently propelling yourself along? So there are a number of teachers that along the way have inspired me. Interestingly, not always in science. So again, one of my best teachers was in history. And his way of teaching 20th century history was just absolutely phenomenal and has always allowed me to keep that interest in human history and human development. What did he do? Sorry? What, what did he do in particular? What was so remarkable about the way he did it? Again, it's sometimes about the structure of how you tell a story, but it's also about narrative. And I think this is something that I try to bring into my teaching is that each lecture is a story. Because people from the very early days of uh, our evolution have sat around fires telling stories. And that is an incredibly powerful way of actually teaching and bringing the new generation into new ideas. It's not to just go, here are the facts, it's to link them with stories humanize them by actually making sure they understand who's actually come up with the ideas, why they had to battle to get them. And so I think that's really important. And that comes out through my university days, but also at school. Also, 
again, just the subject matter. I mean, I can remember at the beginning of Bristol uh, in the first year being taught about human evolution. Now, the lecturer was probably the worst lecturer on the planet. They were the dullest lectures. They were so dry. But the actual underlying science was so fascinating that I went off and toddled off and started reading up on my own and things like that. And that, and it's that my curiosity is one thing that's just driven me on and on and on because I just want to understand. And interestingly enough, it means that over the last 15 years, one of my major scientific fields has been looking at early human evolution in Africa. Yeah, I was wondering but it how started, started in year one of the university with some of the worst lectures I've ever attended. <laughs> Was this an elective? Did you have to? Because as someone who's a, a geography major, you wouldn't think that would necessarily be a mandatory course. But so, I, so geography in, this, in the United Kingdom covers a huge range. Okay. So in my own uh, department at UCL, we will do things about deep sea sediments, long-term climate change, uh, the ice ages, all the way through to hydrology, geomorphology, all the classical physical geography, including weather. And then we get into the social side, which is then about development, economic development, all the way through culture and how different cultures view nature. Mm -hmm. um, we even have one person that I find incredibly fascinating, James Neal, who studies science fiction novels. Mm -hmm. What he looks at is how science fiction has influenced scientists, and how science has influenced science fiction. Because I have to say, I have to put my hand up, and most scientists will guiltily put their hands up. Yeah, we read a lot of science fiction when we were kids. And again, that gives you that sort of vision of what the future could look like. And of course, most visions of the future are driven by new, exciting science. Hmm. So um, regardless of the appalling nature of the <laughs> lecture in... Uh, Who would not be named. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Uh, you nonetheless had the wherewithal and, and the, the fortitude to be able to expose yourself to these ideas, which are, are still with you. I don't know if we'll have much time, but I would like to, if we have any Absolutely. time, talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but primarily, you're, you, you move in a, in a field that's more aligned with physical geography, as I understand it, and you start, uh, you go off to Cambridge and yep. you do uh, paleoceanography, is Correct. that, is that, is that yep. what you do? So tell me about your, how your interests evolved there and, and what you uh, were interested in doing. So one of the things I say to my students is, you never know which direction your career is going to go in. And sometimes, actually, it's the rejections that define your career. Hmm. So I toddled off in my third year undergraduate at uh, Bristol, I toddled off to Cambridge to be interviewed for a PhD in the geography department on eskers. Now, eskers are S-shaped uh, hills that you find formed under great ice sheets. I was, would have to go off to Finland, drive around, measure them, etc., etc. Now, two of us were interviewed. One had already graduated from that department uh, with a first, had a, a, a career already in computing, which in those days, that was exciting because they'd actually touched a computer. Um, and of course, at the end of uh, uh, the afternoon, they got the PhD, and the, one of the people who's still at Cambridge, uh, he grabbed me and said, I'm not happy with this, you should have got that PhD. Dragged me across the road, which happens to be called Downing Street, so I crossed Downing Street, taken into a rabbit warren, and introduced to Nick Shackleton, and he then sat down for about 10 or 15 minutes, flicked through my 
third year dissertation and sort of asked me lots of questions. I then had afternoon tea, because that's always happened in the Godwin lab. And then he basically showed me the door and showed me the direction to the station. Then said, phone me tomorrow. So I phoned him the next day and he said, oh, well, if you get the right degree, um, then yes, you can have my PhD. So that's how I got the PhD with Sir Professor Nick Shackleton, FRS, brackets, God, close brackets. <laughs> so, and again, it, didn't, it took me until about the second year of my PhD to realize actually how famous and important my supervisor was. So again, I tried to teach my own PhD students that sometimes failures, rejections, just open new doors. So again, my career was pure chance that I was at the right time at the right place and actually got turned down for actually what would have been a really bloody awful PhD. Wow. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but certainly that's serendipity in action, mm -hmm. my, my, my goodness. Um, so one thing that I wonder about sometimes is somebody who has the sort of background that you have and you're, or at least as I understand mm -hmm. the sort of background that you have, and who's clearly interested in understanding the science of the earth and various mm -hmm. processes and examining what's happening in the oceans and looking both at the archaeological record and looking at trends in the present day and perhaps trying to put things together and model and so forth and so on, and looking at these physical processes, who has a scientific disposition and who is excited by those sorts of challenges then finds after 10 or 15 years, or whatever it is, X years, that he or she is spending an inordinate amount of time writing op-eds in newspapers and appearing on stage in debates or mock debates mm -hmm. and persuading people about the socio-political relevance of climate change and the, trying to disabuse people of mm -hmm. X or Y or what have you. That's a bit of a shift. Do you ever... Do you ever find, um, do you ever ask yourself, how did, how did I get here exactly? I was supposed to be really interested in science, quasi-science, and I, and I wind up with all this political stuff? Um, I do wonder how my research ex uh, agenda has got so wide. And I have to say, people do occasionally raise eyebrows. So, for example, last week, my PhD student, I have a commentary in Nature and it's on uh, global clean energy uh, negotiations and how different countries are trying to set their limits, which is a way away from how the Ice Ages started. Right. However, I think it's partly because starting off as a geographer, which many people see as a bit of an insult. So if you mention that uh, you're a geographer to uh, a physicist, they just go, yeah. that's not even a scientist. Yeah, but those guys are terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can say that to you. <laughs> However, again, when you look at any natural system, the first thing you learn as a geographer is it isn't a natural system because you have humans. And so the human influence on every single system is always there. Mm. And therefore, even if you try to scientifically go, well, I'm going to look at all the natural processes, oh yes, and then I'm going to add in the human process. So that's always been there. And again, I think the other thing that I've been aware of is that science is great, and I love science, but science then has to interact with society. And I'm also very aware that my salary is paid for by the UK taxpayer. 
So at some point, I need to say why I'm doing this science, what relevance it is. And I think the key thing, and this is something I try to be very careful of, is that I stick to my knowledge base. So for example, if I'm talking about climate change, I will stick to the parts of climate that I know. I also make it very clear to people when I'm talking about what the science tells us and what my opinion is. And I try to make sure that people, whichever audience knows that there are two different things going on because of course it is very easy as a scientist to try and get sucked into that political sort of right. uh, maelstrom and put your own views out there as supported by science. And so again, I'm very clear about the difference between me Right. and the science and I think that's it just adds to the variety and that for me just I think that science, many scientists have become too focused and I think if we go back to the sort of the natural scientist or the Victorian period where you had knowledge of many areas and how they intersected as well as how it interacted with society I think those individuals are much more interesting and exciting than those that are just doing one thing for 10, 20, 30 years. Well, it's a sense of making connections yep. and, and making connections within that broader ambit, as you were saying, of including a priori, the human mm -hmm. element and human interactions, as opposed to some other scientific areas, such as uh, early universe cosmology or what yep. have you, and clearly that's not a relevant factor, unless you want to talk about the humans who are doing early universe cosmology, but that's a whole different, <laughs> yes. a whole different kettle of fish. Um, so let's move to, um, I mean, there is there is a bit I can add to that. Please. I mean, so all of this sort of work about the politics, about humans, and about the natural systems has actually come to fruition in the last couple of years, because scientists are now talking about are we in the Anthropocene? And so this Anthropocene is this wonderful uh, term that's been coined that suggests, well, hang on, influences of humans are so large that perhaps we can be perceived as a geological superpower. So we're influencing the planet as much as, say, plate tectonics, uh, a meteorite impact, um, and therefore we're having a planetary scale effect both on the environment, but also evolution, because we're now controlling evolution through extinctions, through new species that we're creating in the labs. So we've suddenly become this power. Mm. And to actually recognize that, perhaps we should look back and say, well, hang on, when did we start a new geological period, or it would be called an epoch? And that debate is really interesting because it brings together all the natural systems, all our impacts, and then you put the sociological sort of dimensions on top of it to see, well, hang on, when did we actually become this sort of super creature actually affecting the whole planet? So bizarrely enough, it seems all my background has slowly been moving towards this pinnacle, then being able to uh, discuss and actually argue about when did the Anthropocene even start. So when do you think the Anthropoc Anthropocene did start? So I, I try to be um, even-handed with the <laughs> Anthropocene debate, unlike some of my colleagues. So there are a number of ages that have been suggested. Um, and there's a discussion whether you need an actual proper marker, geological marker in time, or whether you can just make up an age. Simon Lewis and I who had this uh, big review paper in Nature last year, we would argue you have to stick to the geology. Because if you don't stick to the geological definitions, you're basically just playing politics. Mm -hmm. and so you have to go back to the fundamental science. So we found in reviewing everything and all the different possible dates that there were three. 
One's about 5,000 years ago, when early farmers started to deforest uh, large areas of the world, started wet uh, rice uh, paddy fields, and therefore there is the first increase in CO2 and methane that we find in the ice core records. So they're actually influencing global climate. Hmm. And they may have even actually delayed the next ice age. That small change there. Really, even then, even yeah. 5,000 years ago? So not 5,000 years ago, but that cumulative sure. of agriculture, which is only about 40 parts per million, may have just taken us up over the CO2 level that would have dropped into the next ice age. Okay, but but can we... So I want to let, get yeah. you back because uh, yep. because you were in the middle of something. But this started 5,000 years ago. But of course, it, it's not a linear progression. So the, the uh, when you say the cumulative impact over the last yep. 5,000 years, then we have to start talking about what happened in the last 100 years. And I want to Absolutely. get there and, and so forth. So, this so, so, so CO2 and methane seem to rise fairly linear through for, for, for 5,000 to 1,000 years ago. So that does that. Yeah. However, there's nothing else that happens. So there's no other major changes at that point. So we dismiss that one. The one that Simon Lewis and I really uh, like and we're pushing is 1610. Because what you find is that there is a dip in the CO2 record about 1610. And the reason being is, of course, Christopher Columbus rediscovered the Americas. And by doing that and colonizing the Americas, what they did was start to exchange organisms from the New World and the Old World. So this huge swapping of sort of organisms, which is irreversible in our mind. Um, unfortunately, we also brought over smallpox, measles, and typhus to South America and Latin America. And estimates from uh, colleagues and also one of our PhD students suggest that 50 million people died in the Americas. 50 million? 50 million people. I knew a lot, but that's... Uh... So these, well, these are the, the, indigenous. The, the indigenous people. Because what we've rediscovered by looking at archaeological records properly is actually we're very successful as people. And we're very successful as farmers. <laughs> so we now know that in the past, there were a lot more of us than we were expecting. Um, so yeah, 50 million. And what happened was that the uh, rainforest and the savannah grew back. Because as it grew back, it took CO2 out of the atmosphere. So much so that you can see it in the ice core record that CO2 globally dropped. Hmm. And then as population recovered, then of course it recovered and then started towards the Industrial Revolution. So we argue that this was the start because A, if we all disappear now, that exchange of creatures is permanent in the record. I'll give you an example. If you go to North America, the majority of earthworms in North America are European. Okay? So we can't reverse that. And the reason being is because European earthworms have this little trick, which is they go through the uh, soil and then they go up, grab the leaf litter, and pull it down. Go, oh, yummy, and pull it down. North American earthworms never had this trick. So they just wait for it to decay, to get into the soil, and then they'll eat it. So, of course, the uh, Europeans are completely out competing the uh, North American native worms. We could never reverse that. Can you imagine trying to actually pick up all the earthworms? Go, nope, back to Europe, sorry, back to Europe. It just wouldn't happen. So we've already, and we've been doing this now. I mean, you know that many countries are worried about invasive species. So this is an ongoing problem exchanging biota between all of the different continents. So that was our one, which is 1610, and that was our novel 
contribution right. to the debate. I wonder why this is so interesting. You're going to go on, but no, no. Why, why is it that the North American earthworms never um, became sufficiently sophisticated that they start realizing, uh, recognizing this as well? Anyway, that's a question you doubtless can't answer. But well, uh, maybe lack of competition, too much television. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too many TV dinners, so you didn't need to actually get out much. So yes, I can see that happening. Anyway, sorry. Yep. Back, back to uh, so after so there's uh, there's five thousand years ago. There's sixteen ten, and then the other one is that um, uh, a lot of people really like what's called the Great Acceleration. So from nineteen fifties onwards, everything starts to change. So we uh, from nineteen fifty to today, we've doubled the world population. Uh, we've uh, increased the amount of deforestation. So it's all started to become exponential in the 1950s. And there's a really nice spike that you can use, so a geological spike, which is the C14 record. And what happens is, of course, up until 1963, we were testing nuclear bombs above ground. Oops. Of course, and you have all that radioactive material kicking around in the atmosphere. And that's picked up, particularly in radiocarbon. So you have this increase from 1945 with the first bomb all the way up to 63. And then in 63, there was the partial test bomb treaty, which stopped above ground uh, bomb tests. And then it's dropped off since then. So globally, it peaks in 1964 because it takes about a year for it to mix. And it gives you a lovely spike right in the middle of the 1960s, which could be used as your sort of like... Uh, your stratigraphic marker. Because again, huge amounts of things changed during the 50s and 60s. It's uh, in the 60s and 70s, CO2 starts to uh, ramp up massively. You then in the 80s and 90s start to get sea, uh, sea temperatures and air temperatures uh, starting to uh, increase rapidly as well. So that's another one. So those, those are the three possible starts for the Anthropocene. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, uh which one you're going to plunk for, and maybe you're just delineating those three. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, one question came to mind as you were speaking when you were talking about the effect of testing nuclear weapons above ground. Um, my understanding is they tended to do this more in the South Pacific and in other places. Now, I understand that uh, there are convection currents and that if you do it somewhere mm -hmm. in the world, it will affect other places in the world and so forth. But can you actually see geological markers and the effect that's localized to some extent one place more than another because of where they were doing a lot of these testing or is it is it is that not the case so there are tree rings so what you do is you get beautiful tree rings from the 50s 60s and 70s mm -hmm. in and we've got them from the northern hemisphere the tropics and a friend of mine's just got a beautiful record from tasmania and you measure the radiocarbon in the tree wood. And what you find is that 1963 is the peak in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. It then spreads and you have the tropics in the Southern Hemisphere, you have a 1964. So you have a beautiful, because the uh, atmosphere mixes so quickly right. that you only have a, a, a year's delay. So you have this beautiful sort of like on year peak, which then ties in. And when you look at these, um, these tree rings, this was something else that, uh, when I started thinking about it, when you start thinking about things, you realize how little you know, because I, I, 
I remember, uh, so I, I thought, okay, so you can, you, can tra- you can test for trace amounts of presumably something, I don't know, yep. hyd- uh, oxygen isotopes or carbon or whatever it is that you're looking at in the growth of these things. Um, and I can imagine that there are some trees um, in Canada, for example, that have fairly well-defined growing seasons, yep. and so you, you, the ring structure is evident. But if you're looking at, at flora in subtropical zones, mm-hmm. they might not have a. They might not even have rings. Is that is that right? I mean, does it matter where you're looking? Oh, I, I have to say, I'm not an expert on tree rings, yeah, though, well, but you're, I, you're I do. The expert in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the expert in the room. But again, I I do make sure that I cover this in in my master's courses. So yes, trees in different climate zones have different structures. So in the northern hemisphere, where most of the work's been done, because we have tree ring chronology going back, I think it's 14,000 years, okay? Mm. So yes, we've linked tree to tree to tree to tree to tree to tree, all the way back from the present day, all the way back to 14,000 years. Beautiful chronology with different, by matching the thickness of the rings, so you can overlay each of the records. And done this in great detail for all of Northern Europe. And what's interesting is, of course, you do get two rings, which is, of course, the winter and the summer. Now, as soon as you get into the Mediterranean, where I take my students, uh, my third year students on field work, and they do tree rings, you get, you do get two rings, but actually that's because of the wet and the dry season, which is summer and autumn, whereby it gets too cold in the winter for them to grow. So different. And then when you get into the tropics, what you may have is rings which are uh, wet season, dry season. So you have to know your tree, you have to know your species, and each species has different ways of growing. So yes, so this is why people do spend their whole lives just working on tree rings, to be able to understand A, the tree, understand what sort of rings. And I have to say, you have to take lots and lots of trees, because some trees, as I teach the students, will grow crooked, the rings will be twisted, or you get uh, winds, so a tree like that will actually then produce uh, narrow rings on one side and the other side. Mm. So yeah, it takes a lot of work. That's why I'm not a dendrochronologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you, you delineated these, getting back to the, is it Anthropocene? Is it Anthropocene? How, do you, how, do, how does one pronounce it exactly? I, I, I say Anthropocene, Anthropocene. Uh, but the Anthropocene, is mainly North Americans. Okay. It's so it's so I can it, say it either way. Oh, of course you can. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, there, there is no fixed way. So um, yes, there is a, a definitely a cross-Atlantic difference in uh, pronunciation. Okay. But anyway, this this period, yeah, uh, you're positing uh, could be associated with three um, objective geological yep. markers uh, when uh, humans started farming yep. five thousand years ago. The 1610 event when um, the, the interchange between European species and uh, yep. various things in North American species, and then the 1950s. Um, do you plunk for any one of these three in particular yourself? So Simon Lewis and I are strong advocators of 1610 because the interesting thing there is for three reasons. One, because the exchange of uh, plants and animals horses, cows, um, uh, cassava, maize to Africa is a permanent signal that we can never undo. Whatever happens in the future, we have changed evolution and biology on the planet, full stop. 
Second thing is that it's also the start of capitalism. And the start of capitalism in this uh, sort of uh, wild west frontier of uh, going raiding different continents, etc., literally leads through to the present day. And the third thing is, we believe that the annexation of the Americas and depopulation, uh, not, by, not on purpose, but this unfortunate depopulation, allowed Europe to industrialize. So it's really interesting. If you think about it, China has an empire for 5,000 years. doesn't have an industrial revolution. The Ottoman Empire, thousands of years, doesn't have a, um, uh, an industrial revolution. Egypt, another four to 5,000 year empire, no industrial revolution, but Europe does. And if you've visited Europe in the medieval times and looked at it, I'm sorry, you've got the Chinese Empire, you've got the Ottoman Empire, and you've got this cesspit. I mean, really, it's a backwater. Right. There's no way you would turn around and go, yes, this is going to be where everything changes and this is going to drive the whole world economy. But the problem with all the other empires is that you have to have a certain number of people working on the fields to produce enough food for everybody. So you're landlocked. You're locked to a certain amount of food and a certain number of people. Of course, if you have a whole new continent stripped bare, which you can steal all the gold, the silver, all their resources, all their food, and ship it to your continent, you suddenly can break that population sort of uh, boundary. Mm -hmm. And so that happened in Europe. At the same time, you have European countries, all about the same size, all of which had kings and queens who were related and in deep competition. So you find there were periods of time over the last 800 years where the major powers have spent about 50% of the time actually at war. And war drives innovation. So you suddenly go from the Chinese having gunpowder to the, uh, so the Europeans producing some of the most accurate rifles on the planet and being able to uh, fire a cannonball over a mile. So you suddenly have this huge competition. Right. You then, bizarrely enough, have Britain, who um, sort of, A, has the steam engine invented, which is great, which was to pump water out of the mines in uh, Cornwall so they could dig out more tin for their industry. And then, of course, uh, we suddenly run out of wood because we're deforested, building ships to keep Napoleon and the French out. And so, again, that environmental limit meant that we switched to coal. Mm. And, hey, presto, you have the Industrial Revolution. And you had a lot of it, as it happened. A lot of coal, yes. So all these things had to be in place. And so the interesting thing is that without the annexation of the Americas, you would never have had an industrial revolution in Europe that started in Britain because of that whole colonial power and fight between those powers. And therefore, you would never have had the great acceleration. And you would never have had where we've got to now. So that's where we would put it. Hmm. Um, a couple of comments spring to mind before I want to go back to yep. early climate. But one is, um, it seems like there's an argument that Britain was more part of Europe then than it is now. But that's a whole other... <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't stop me on that. That's... Um, the, second, um, <clears throat> the second comment is, uh, without trying to be too teleological or draw too many links, it seems like I can see... Uh, the influence of your aforementioned high school history teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would like to do now is I'd like to go back to 
much, much earlier era in terms of climate. Because mm -hmm. I think when people hear about climate and climate changing, one of the things that um, people grapple with right off is, well, hang on, there were these ice ages that, mm -hmm. that, that, that happened, and climate's always been changing all over mm -hmm. the place. Um, and uh, my understanding is, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that ice ages um, are fairly well documented to be happening every roughly 100,000 years or so. And they do that primarily because of the dynamics of um, just the orbit. There are a couple of things, mm -hmm. precession and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But there are a couple of factors, but it has yeah. to do with the variation of this cyclical variation of uh, of the Earth and its tilt and its axis, as well as the, the actual change in the orbit around the Sun. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. So the seminal paper on ice ages uh, came out almost 40 years ago. Uh, it was by uh, Jim Hayes, uh, John Imbrie, and Nick Shackleton, my PhD supervisor. And interestingly, I've just written a news and views in retrospect for that paper for Nature that will come out in December. Mm. And so what this paper did in 1976 was say, look, we've got these ideas. And sort of uh, the first mathematical uh, proof of this was uh, developed by uh, Milankovic in 1941. But nobody had had the ability to test it. And what they did was they took long deep sea sediment records. They then measured different proxy records in the records. So one of them was the fossils. Uh, assemblage that allows you to calculate the temperature of the water. There was also oxygen isotopes that allow you to give an estimate of how much ice there was on the planet. And that gives you nice cycles and shows you the big ice ages. And what they were able to do is statistically link those to the beautiful wobbles that you uh, described, which are precession, eccentricity, and obliquity. And those wobbles of the Earth change the amount of sun's energy hitting different parts of the planet. And the key one is actually Northern Hemisphere summer. Mm. So if you can just make those wobbles, make summers a little bit cooler, a little bit ice can survive. And if that ice gets through one summer, it will survive through the winter and grow. And if it can get a bit bigger, and then that's how you build up an ice sheet. You can start to build that, but it's just by having that summer slightly cooler right. because you get less solar energy. So we know for about the last 40 years, we've known the underlying causes. What has happened in the interim is that we've understood, firstly, the resolution. So we've actually now got such high resolution records, we can see how quickly the ice ages take. And actually, ice ages take a huge amount of time to build up. So over that 100,000 year cycle, you're looking at perhaps 80,000 years to get the full ice age. One of the key things we've done over the last 40 years is one, improve the resolution of our records so we can see how quickly ice ages form and how quickly they disappear. And the interesting thing is about the last eight cycles, what happens is you have these slow buildup of ice, it takes about 80,000 years to get a full ice age. Now full ice age is when you have ice sheets three kilometers thick over North America, over Chicago. Okay, so you're talking about a huge amount of ice. Standard uh, Chicago winter, but anyway. 
three kilometres, two miles of ice. I think it's slightly colder than they have nowadays. You know, you know maybe I'm wrong. I have to go there. Um, is the whole Earth a snow? Is this is this the snowball Earth or does no, no, does no, that no, not no, no snowball Earth is else. billions of years. Okay. So snow, snowball is something different. Okay. Which I'm happy to talk about okay. separately, but no. So it's only you get the ice sheets expanding from both poles. So you get it down to sort of like the Great Lakes in North America, and in Europe, actually, you find in North, uh, Northern Europe, you find that uh, the ice sheets actually stopped actually just north of here in Finchley, uh, where my mother-in-law actually uh, lives. Um, it's called the Finchley Depression, but not because of my mother-in-law, but it is a depression where the ice sheet before last actually stopped. And so you have most of northern uh, Britain covered in ice sheet and kind of Scandinavia as well. And so you have these big ice sheets. To give you an idea how much ice was locked up, the ocean, which covers 70% of the world's surface, dropped by 120 meters. So that's about the height of the London Eye. Okay? So that gives you an idea of the amount of water that was locked up in these ice. But we also know that at the end of an ice age, it takes less than 4,000 years to get rid of all of that ice. So very positive feedbacks. So we also know that cooling down the planet takes a long time because ice sheets are unstable. They like to collapse. Mm. But warming up a planet, or our planet at the moment, actually quite easy and causes very positive feedbacks. We also know by looking back, we can see where we are in the actual story. So we're currently in the Holocene, which is an interglacial. We can look back at previous interglacials and see that for the last two and a half million years, our warm period of time makes up about 10% of that period. And so we're in the sort of like the warm, slightly unusual period when we don't have ice sheets. And I think it was James Lovelock who wonderfully said, and then climate change, all we're doing is adding to the fevered state of the planet. So we're just adding to the warmth that is a bit unusual for our period of time. So we're actually in what is called an ice house world. So we're quite ice locked at the moment. So we're, I think we're in the only geological period of time that I know where we have ice at both poles. Usually in big ice ages and the geological past, we have big ice at one pole, but we haven't had ice at the other pole. This is one of the few times we have ice at both poles. So if you go back to when the dinosaurs uh, were roaming around, the planet was much warmer, much lusher, we had rainforest up to uh, the Canadian border, down to Patagonia. However, the difference there is there wasn't huge amounts of ice lying around ready to melt and actually cause problems for us. Right. Um, I have a couple of questions, but I, I, I thought I'd ask about the snowball earth. So tell me about the snowball earth and how that differs from, from this. Presumably the whole earth gets in, encased in yep. ice. So, so how does that happen? So when people talk about snowball earth, we are talking now... Um, one to two billion years ago, so uh, in deep, deep time. So almost before real geology starts. So what you find is that geology usually starts with the Cambrian explosion of life, okay? And then you have, that's about five and a half, sorry, uh, 550 million years ago. So, mm. But it's before that. What happens is that because of feedbacks that start to cool the planet down, the ice starts to grow. And there isn't anything limiting the actual ice growth. So what we find nowadays is that we have lots of plankton in the ocean 
that build carbonate shells. Mm. And so we have a buffering system. So even though CO2 can go up and go down, geologically, it's then bound by particular conditions because the buffering of the ocean. Those didn't exist back then. And so there's nothing to stop the whole system cooling down. And there was a huge discussion whether we have a snowball earth, i.e. the whole planet was ice-locked, or slush ball, i.e. there was still, the oceans were still a- able to move, etc. The problem that we have with snowball earth is we can see how you can get into that catastrophe. What's problematic is then how do you actually get out of that? How do you actually get the system w- warming up? And people suggest that perhaps with volcanic right, eruptions, right, right. enough CO2 and methane in the atmosphere would be released to actually then start the warming process and undo that. And as you say, that's highly nonlinear. So, so the once it starts, it, you it, you can then get through yeah. it. But what's interesting is as soon as you get um, uh, protozoa evolving in the ocean that make calcium carbonate shells, that starts to buffer the whole carbon system. We've never had a snowball Earth since. Hmm. So even the great ice ages that we've had during the Carboniferous period and uh, eighteen thousand years ago all only get to a certain level. They can't they never get any closer to the tropics than they do, say, in North London. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I wanted to also pick up on something that you mentioned a, a little while ago, which is that although we're in this in-between stage, I don't know the technical term, but interglacial. In, okay. Yeah. Interglacial. So uh, <laughs> that's it's not even all that technical. Actually. No. I should have known that. No. So um, while we're in this interglacial <laughs> stage, uh, people have been able to calculate with some degree of accuracy just how far we have postponed the the next ice age, the oncoming ice age, because of the, the extra CO2 that's been uh, inserted into the atmosphere. Is that, is that a fair statement or is that still very much up in the air? No, so the, the, there have been some very good studies on the future of glacial interglacial cycles. Um, because the interesting thing, the other thing we've learned in the last 40 years is the wobbles just push the climate in a particular direction. So when my students say, oh yes, orbital forcing causes ice ages, they're wrong. Because that isn't the cause, it's the climate feedbacks that actually cause. So uh, the wonderful example is we have the same configuration today as we did have 18,000 years ago, but we don't have an ice age. So it's where you've come from depends on which way the orbital forcing pushes you. So by looking at other interglacials, what you find is that all other interglacials you get is uh, deglaciation, all the ice disappears, CO2 goes up, methane goes up, and then they stay high and then they just slowly drop down and then they get to about a certain critical limit, which is about usually about 240 parts per million for CO2, and then we slide into the next ice age. Okay, it still takes a long time, but we turn that corner. What colleagues have seen is that start of the Holocene did the same thing. And then about 5,000 years ago, methane and CO2 actually start to do that, which we think is because of early farmers, the deforestation, the human impact. And so instead of traipsing down to sort of like the 240, oh, no, no, we made it up to 280 by the pre-industrial. If you start looking at that, you can then see that perhaps around today or within a thousand years of today, we should have started to go into the next ice age. However, 
because of that up, we then delayed the next ice age. Um, and with the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere now, some estimates suggest that we've definitely put off the next ice age for another 50,000 years. And if we can carry on as business as usual with the carbon, then we probably put it off for about another half a million years. Mm. So human impact is so large that we're now ta taking celestial mechanics and then basically saying, no, the climate system is not going to react. And so we could be delaying the next ice age for half a million years. Mm. So let's, let's talk about something that we can measure over the last 100 and 150 years, yep. as you've done in your book. Um, so tell me a little bit about the confidence that we have that factors such as temperature have, uh, there are different ways of measuring yep. temperature, and tell me about that, and precipitation, and, uh, and sea level, and all the rest of that, that what's happened over the last 100 and 150 years that, that, that we know, that we have some right. assurance of. So depending on what scale you want to look at, if we look at, say, the last 150 years, we're very lucky because we have great records. So particularly the Victorians that started this whole science agenda measuring the world. So again, the great thing about temperature is thermometers are incredibly accurate, incredibly easy to use, and therefore we have huge numbers of records from around the world. We also have a lot of sea temperatures as well because, of course, all commercial shipping is mandated to take measurements of the sea temperature and other measurements as they are traipsing across the oceans. So we have this huge amount of data. And so what different organizations have done, and this is important, that different organizations have done it. So we have NASA, NOAA, the Met Office here. We even had a rogue group of physicists in Berkeley who didn't believe the temperature records, so they did it themselves. Um, this is, is this guy Muller or whatever? Yes. Is that so Muller didn't believe the, uh, the temperature, average temperature of the record. So when you put all these together, and you have to be very careful because different places measure things differently, mm. and so you have to actually correct. Okay, and this is where people get the idea that we're trying to fix the Yeah, we'll get that in a moment, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> you see from sort of like the last 150 years, you see a strong warming. You have a slight hiatus during the 40s, then you have a strong warming again through to the present day. Now, that's built on all these climate records put together. Now, the Japanese Meteorological um, sort of Society, the Met Office, NASA, NOAA, all those records look very similar. They're different in the detail, which is great because they're doing different stats, they're doing different ways of compilating it. And what was really interesting is when Muller and his physicists put their together, they actually got a greater temperature range. The reason being is we suspect that they hadn't actually corrected some of their records to make them correct. Mm. And so therefore, they got an even bigger temperature range. And that's about 0.8 of degrees Celsius, perhaps 0.9 degrees Celsius in the whole range. So we know we've warmed up the planet by that amount in the last 150 years. But we can also look longer term. So we can look at ice core records from sort of uh, um, Greenland uh, where they, the ice accumulates very quickly and into glaciers and you can look at proxies for temperature and you can then splice those together and this is where we get what is commonly called the hockey stick because you can reconstruct temperatures going back four, five, six thousand years and you can see that the temperatures have been slowly cooling down and then we have this big tail 
or big stick at the end, which is where we've actually then started to influence uh, greenhouse gas composition and therefore increase temperatures markedly. So I can imagine somebody watching this and saying, okay, I can accept the fact, or at least I'm willing to be convinced of the fact that humans are changing the climate mm-hmm. by, their, by their actions. We're in the Anthropocene, or however one wants yep. to pronounce it. But so what? I don't really care that the next ice age has been put off for a while because I I, I'm not really keen on having my great, 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 and there are problems yeah. with the numbers. But anyway, yeah. uh, grandchildren having to deal with an ice age anyway. So why should I, why should I particularly care about this? So the worry about climate change is not about the next ice age. So let's, let's ignore that. That's, that's uh, an academic discussion because as far as we know, it's not going to happen. So what's important about climate change is that everything we do in society is based on our knowledge of climate. Now you may not think this, but when farmers plant seeds, when farmers actually um, plow, when they actually then harvest, is all based on their knowledge of rainfall, when it occurs, temperature, growing season, and all of that. If we then look at our infrastructure, the way we build our railways, our roads, all of that is based on our knowledge of um, what the range of temperature is going to be. So for example, if you're in London, um, only if you happen to be in an office block will you have air conditioning. If you're in a normal person's home, you won't have air conditioning because we don't have temperatures that are that hot. If you go to, say, Houston in Texas, I'm sorry, I'm not going anywhere that doesn't have air conditioning, okay? <laughs> it's because of different, we know what the range of temperatures are. And this is something I always say to my students. Humans live in almost every condition on the planet. From Inuits who are happy living at minus 10 and get stressed when the temperature gets to zero because it's too warm for them, to people living in sub-Saharan Africa or in Texas, whereby 40, 45 degrees uh, Celsius, that's just a balmy, sunny summer's day, okay? So we do live in that, but the difference is we know what the boundaries are. What happens with climate change is because we're putting more energy into the system, it means that not only are temperatures increasing, but it increases the amount of uh, extreme weather events we have. It increases the rainfall, and it becomes in more intense bursts. It also means there's more flooding, therefore more droughts. And so we have those extremes to deal with. And the problem is, if we were all equally rich, if we were all like Europeans or North Americans, and we all had that sort of wealth, then, of course, we really wouldn't worry about it, apart from the big hurricanes coming in and big disasters like that, because we could adapt to it. But the majority of people in the world are subsistence farmers. They're producing food in the tropics, which they then sell the extra to feed the people in the cities. And so, actually, most of the population of this planet are very sensitive to changes in climate and weather. And actually, that's the insidious nature of climate change. It's just changing the rules whereby we live. And of course, all of our calculations are based on normal weather, and that's not going to happen in the future. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the politics of this. One of the interesting things about climate change is that it touches on so many different areas. Mm-hmm. It touches, obviously, on science um, and different aspects of science. Mm-hmm. Um, it touches on politics, it touches on economics, it touches on anthropology, it yeah. touches on, on all of these different areas. Um, 
So, I have a theory. So tell me oh, if my theory yeah. is right or, or, or theory, right. right? Yeah. Uh, so this, my theory is um, that many people have a hard time understanding aspects of the process of science. So those people who were very quick to um, deny the scientific consensus mm -hmm. of climate change. And we can talk about those who had a vested interest in the fossil fuel industry and yeah. so forth, and hopefully we will at some point, and their influence and all the rest of that. But that's a whole other issue. I mean, your average guy on the street, or even your average honest journalist, assuming that such a mm -hmm. beast exists, um, who's trying to get a handle on what's going on, they're getting all this verbiage coming at them from different directions. And my theory is that most people interpret information within the context of there necessarily being two sides to every story. So that's a context which exists in the political realm. Mm -hmm. If you turn on the news, you'll, you'll hear what the, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party says, mm -hmm. and that will be interpreted by relatively objective journalists who say, mm -hmm. yes, well, this is, of course, what this person would say, and then the leader of the Labour Party would mm -hmm. say something else, and so forth. And so there is this idiom through which everyone is used to processing information. And similarly, what happens or what seems to happen is when a group of scientists say that there is this consensus that's reached, there seems to be this pressure on the part of the media to say, well, let's go find somebody. Okay, so the scientific community mm -hmm. says this, or, or there's some consensus that, that's going on over there. Um, we're going to need to give equal time to somebody who says something else. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the misinterpretation is that the scientists, the group of scientists on Team A or whatever yep. you want, live by the same rules that the conservatives and the, the labor politicians do. Yep. Whereas in actuality, well, of course they could be wrong, they're playing by a somewhat different game. So my theory is that there is a misunderstanding of the process of science mm -hmm. and scientific dissemination. So do you agree with that or do you disagree with that or do you think that's uh, too simplistic or, or, or what? So I think that you've picked up on a really interesting point, which is how the media portrays science. And the media does unfortunately fall back into the for and against, for and against, have two equal people, which has been something for the last 25 years that climate scientists and other scientists have been fighting against in actually not just climate change, but many areas of science where the science may be contentious. And I think that's important. However, I don't think that's why people actually find climate change difficult to accept. I think there is actually another level. Um, because most people have at least some high school science. And actually, the way science is taught in schools is not contentious. It is, this is the theory of gravity. Okay? So everybody knows that there are theories and there are things that they accept. So for example, if you drop an apple, guess what? It drops, and you know it drops at 9.8 meters per second. You know, so um, we know the acceleration. So that should be 9.8 <laughs> meters per second squared. Yeah, okay, corrected by a physicist. So you learn that. So people know. And if you look at trust ratings in the Western world, scientists hmm. still come out as one of the highest professions that is trusted actually above doctors, okay? So the whole idea that science is contentious, etc., just the population misses that. What they do, however, have 
is their own political views. And what a lot of sociological studies have now shown is that the person's personal politics affects what they can or cannot believe. And the reason being is if you unpack climate change, so climate change basically is a pollution issue. It is we are putting carbon into the atmosphere through burning fossil fuels, uh, by um, deforestating, uh, deforesting areas, um, and therefore all we have to do is change that. But to do that, we have to act for the greater good. We have to work with other countries. We have to work collectively. And that actually is diametrically opposed to the major political thinking of the last 35 years, which is neoliberalism. So neoliberalism emerged out of the 70s, out of sort of uh, capitalism, and with the fall of sort of the Soviet Union, the rampant idea of individual freedom, the markets know best, was cut loose and allowed to develop through Margaret Thatcher and Reagan. Okay? Now, the problem is that neoliberalism says, okay, so individuals have to have the right to do what they want, uh, markets know best, we want to induce government interference because, of course, that red tape slows everybody down. And, of course, this is for the greater good because, of course, if we make money up here, it all trickles down to the poor people and everybody gets lifted out of poverty. Even the IMF have now said perhaps the uh, stated aims of neoliberalism haven't actually occurred. Okay? So there is now major economic rethinking. Well, hang on, the trickle down hasn't worked. So that's politics aside. But if you happen to believe that markets are the best control, governments are actually interfering and therefore actually are problematic, to have then environmental regulations which control the amount of pollution you can put into the atmosphere, that has to be agreed not only within your country, but, but within the whole world, mm. and you then have to reduce your, and cause your industry perhaps increase costs just because people in another country might be dying, suddenly is completely opposed. And a lot of studies have shown that it doesn't matter how much scientific evidence you present to certain people. It doesn't matter if you back it up with more and more studies. And this whole idea that us scientists, and we, us scientists get into the whole trap of, do you know what, perhaps I haven't got the evidence, but you're not seeing the evidence, I need to get more and then piling up more and more evidence. The realization is now there are certain people just because of their fundamental political principles cannot accept climate change, have to deny it, otherwise it undermines their political views. Okay, so I have, I have two questions. I have two <laughs> Only problems. two, I, only two. Well, I, have, I, I actually have more, but I, I have, <laughs> here's my problem with, with, with what you just said. If I unpack that, it seems to me that what you're saying is, yes, people understand science because they have some high school scientific education or they understand basic science principles and they know about apples falling or whatever. I mean, I'm not sure that knowing that apples fall is the same thing as understanding Newtonian gravity or anything like that, but be, be it as it may. <laughs> um, the claim is that there's some understanding of science. And then parallel to that, there's an understanding that if... Or at least trust in science. Okay, trust. But then if, it's, if this clashes with my political principles or my economic values or my right to go out and make as much money as I possibly can, mm -hmm. then I'm simply not going to believe it. So to me, that framework means they don't 
understand science, because science doesn't care whether you agree with it, whether you like it, whether you dislike it. If this is true, um, uh, put it put another way, I'm not sure I can come up with a particularly worthy uh, analogy on the spur of the moment, yep. but it would be akin to saying, well, I just don't like the fact it gets in the way of my thinking, it gets in the way of my ability to make money that apples happen to fall at this particular rate. And so therefore, I'm just going to deny that, yes, I know that there are a bunch of physicists that say that and that the really sophisticated ones are the ones with really pointy heads say that it's not even because of forces, it's because of curvature, mm -hmm. it's because of something else. Um, but I don't care because the idea that apples are falling actually inhibits me from starting my multinational and yep. <laughs> doing yes. whatever it is. So I'm just going to say that doesn't happen. And to me, that shows that you don't understand the process of science. Now, there's another question as to whether the science is, whether there's a real consensus and whether mm -hmm. there's disparity within the view. But the, I, I'm not saying the studies are wrong. I'm but sure the, you're right but, with no, the, the studies. The interesting thing is then what you would expect is as someone's scientific knowledge grows, right. okay, from high school to university, et cetera, et cetera, you expect that their acceptance of uh, climate change would increase. You, you would, but it's However, not. Yeah. the studies coming out of Yale, beautiful studies there, showed that depending on which party you were most likely to vote for in the United States, if you happen to be more of a Republican and you had a higher level of science, you were less likely to believe climate change because the interesting thing is the more science you have goes, well, I know science. I've done science to a degree level. Therefore, I know these guys are actually uh, are making it up because that's not how... It's... So again, the problem is that science is being used against science to actually allow people to continue to believe their own worldview, which is really important for individuals. So, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're having an argument, but I guess <laughs> let, 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 let me let me say what my what my conclusion is of all this. My conclusion is that there is a real education problem, um, and and you might say, well, that education problem can't be taken out of its political social context, and this people believe what they want to believe for other reasons and so forth, but. When I hear all of this, when I hear a Republican saying, these guys are making this up, and I know science, mm -hmm. and let's not say Republican yeah. or Democrat or whatever, when I hear somebody yeah. say that, and then someone else comes along and, and says that uh, that particular view is correlated strongly with being a member of this party or that party or this mm -hmm. uh, economic class or this level of education or whatever, I want to take those words at face value and say, they're making it up. So for me, I know, in the scientific community, in my experience, scientists don't make stuff up. They're wrong sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but they don't make stuff up. Yeah. And, the, and the idea that there is this intergovernmental panel on climate yeah. change that's, that's making stuff up yep. is, is, ab is abhorrent to me. They could be, you know, uh, of course, scientists are human. They have their own particular inclinations and, and whatever. In, but we're in a new political age. We're in the post-truth age. So... People want to believe what they hear. They then, I mean, we've got politicians going, we do not need experts. Yeah. We've, in both sides of the Atlantic. Now, the interesting thing for me is it is a real UK and US phenomenon. This whole experts, well, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. We don't need experts. Why should somebody train for 
20, 30 years to be able to tell me something important. You know, it's sort of like, okay, I might accept my doctor's prognosis because I really care about me and I might take that. But anything else, I'm not going to accept experts. So we've got this to this really weird, strange period of time right. in the early 21st century whereby the populace and particularly politicians are now stepping back. Instead of saying at the beginning of the 21st century, well, my experts say this, your experts say that, but I don't believe them. No, they're not using experts against each other. They're now saying, we don't need experts. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. So it's not just science that's suddenly having this happen. This is starting to actually ripple through. And again, I think some of my colleagues would trace it back to the idea that there was a huge discussion about science being a belief system. So the whole thing, you can take back to the whole discussion of uh, creation versus evolution. Mm. Because again, one of the things I do with my students, so there's 150 first-year students, and I give them a lecture on climate change. The first thing I say is, put your hands up if you believe in climate change. So of course, almost all of them put a hand up. There's always one contrary, because you have to have some independent thinking student in the middle going, oh, okay, brilliant. But then I'll turn around and say, they're all wrong. Because science, as you are absolutely right, is not a belief system. It's a rational system of collecting data, collecting evidence, making theories, testing those theories, both in the real world and into the labs, and then collecting more data to actually perform a rational analysis of what the world is and how it is going to change. Right. Again, it's not a belief system. So all my students have got into this whole thing, yeah, I believe in climate change. No, I'm sorry, it's not a belief system. You can trust, it's a trust system. Do you trust the experts? Do you trust the science? Right. It's not a belief system. Right. So, again, I would say that, sadly, because I was looking forward to a bit of a, yeah. an argument, but I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think we have that, because, because I, I, I agree with you, but I'm flummoxed as to how we got here. Um, I'd like to blame neoliberals for everything. You don't seem to have any qualms about blaming neoliberals for everything. Uh, no. But, uh, but, but I, so let me, let me just put that another way. I mean, I, I find it bizarre to think that in two countries, so let's single out the United States and the United Kingdom yep. as, as two, two countries um, that are first world progressive countries. Yep. Let's, let, me, let me look at the United States in particular. Um, because the United States is a very strange place because while you have these rampant anti, let's not say anti-science, anti-rational thinking mm -hmm. individuals, as you say, yep. that, are, that are categorizing these things as belief systems and so forth, it's also the greatest place on the planet for scientific innovation, oh, absolutely. For, uh, for high level education, mm -hmm for scholarship and, yep. and on a wide variety of different areas. And I guess this is just my own problem, but I just, I look at it holus bolus and I look at the massive populism that you now mm -hmm. see here. Um, so we don't want to mention any names of massive orange haired <laughs> populists, but I think we know, we know who, because we, we don't want to yep. date the footage, but I think it's pretty clear yep. what we're talking about. Um, and you just think, how did we, get here. I mean, you can't blame this all on Milton Friedman or, 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 or whatever. No, I, mean, I mean, there are, there are other, I mean, again, 
What is, I think, both exciting and scary about the 21st century is the ability for everyone, and I mean everyone, to access information. So you can be in the middle of sort of like uh, Kenya and chatting to some of the locals and they go, oh, hang on, get their smartphone out and they check. They've gone, they didn't even bother with the computer age. Okay? They missed that completely out and went straight to the smartphone. It's fantastic. So we'll be sitting there Googling stuff. Okay? Mm. Now, the problem there is if every individual has access to gazillions of uh, uh, data bytes of information and opinion, how do you sort out what to believe, firstly, what sources to trust? Now, of course, there are some who have basically gone through the education system and have a critical ability to think to work out who has an agenda for what. However, most people don't have time to do that. I mean, again, when I take my kids to school, bless them, the other parents are lovely but they're just about keeping their heads above water. They mm. dump their kids at school, they go to do a hard job uh, to the day to make sure they have enough money to then try to pick up their kids to be able to uh, make sure they have a better life. They don't have time, like us academics, to sit back and go, I'm going now to think. I'm going to think and pontificate about who's actually telling me porcupines and who's telling me the truth. They don't have time for that. So they get bombarded with all this information and therefore they use their gut or their friendship circle. So what's interesting is people's beliefs are usually controlled by who they know and who they actually talk to. And so, again, it's the ability to process that amount of information. And the problem is, when I've looked at human evolution, yeah, okay, 50,000 years ago, we were able to actually work out what our tribe was doing and who was doing what to whom, etc. But now we have the ability to check on the opinions of basically every seven billion person on the planet, if you really want to. Mm. How, do you, how do you process that? And I think that's what the 21st century is about, is us learning how to deal with that. And we don't have the political systems that allow that to actually work. So let me ask a more, potentially more provocative question. So if you were not, uh, an academic who had the time to think, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, but instead if you found yourself prime minister mm -hmm. uh, and prime minister with the majority government so you could do yeah. effectively whatever it is okay. that you wanted to do uh, of this country or president of the United States mm -hmm. if you wish, but, but let's just stick that, to prime minister. That's less powerful because... Yes, that's true. You have Congress and all yeah, that yeah, business. Yeah. So, so you, yeah. so you're, that's, that's not a job I want. No. no. <laughs> so you can be the prime minister with yeah. the majority government. What would you do? In, in, in this issue, I'm not talking about, right, that's, that's too broad a question, as, right. as you can appreciate. But I mean, with respect to um, not only changing hearts and minds and making people understand the ramifications of climate change and the cultural change that needs right. to be accompanied yeah. uh, with that, but also broader based issues of educating them as to the process of science and the thinking that's involved right. in science. So the first thing is that as I teach my students, if you happen to be a politician, you have multiple stresses on you at any one time. And therefore, it is very easy as a climatologist to go, oh, well, of course, if you're going to deal with climate change, you need do, 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 do. But as I stress, and I do this at the beginning of all my climate change lectures, I turn around and say there are four big challenges in the world for the 21st century. 
global poverty or inequality, depending on how you wish like to define it. You have climate change. You have environmental degradation, which is going on whether we have climate change or not. And then, of course, there's global security. So you have to, whether you're in control of a country or a region, to be able to provide solutions for all four and make sure that your solution to one doesn't actually exacerbate any of the others. So it's not an easy job being a politician. Sure. Though most academics think, oh, it's easy, you know, just... But most so, academics think any job other than their own is easy. Of course. <laughs> you know, well, why not, you know? So I think, having said that, for me, if I was in charge of the British Isles, the first thing is really shifting the subsidies. So I'd shuffle the subsidies towards, of course, green energy and renewables. Uh, one, because as a British subject, I do not want to be uh, burdened with the idea that Russian gas, uh, Kuwaiti gas, and oil from the Middle East is actually going to dominate my economy and control my economy. Okay? I'd also want to actually make sure that my North Sea oil, which is a wonderful revenue generator for the British Isles, is used up as slowly as possible to maintain it for the future. Okay? So keeping the, the fossil fuel fuels going from, north, uh, from the North Sea to make sure there's revenue, but at the same time shifting us to a low carbon future. Now, the other thing I'd be doing is ensuring that we were the leaders in that technology. Because again, we were the leaders in wind turbines until the Danish bought the companies, moved them to Denmark, now it's Denmark, and interestingly enough, China, who are the leaders in developing wind turbines. So again, I know and can see from all of our papers, the growth in the green economy globally. So I want to be at the forefront of that. I don't want to be sort of like going, what do you mean I can't have a green car that basically goes 200 miles an hour? I'm going to be at that edge and making sure that this incredibly technocratic country, and we have a very technical country, that is at the leading edge. So I think those things are very, very important. You then can actually take that onto the global stage because then if you have countries such as America, you then have Europe as a block, and hopefully we're still part of Europe when this goes out at some point. Or I'll meeting. move it quickly. I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll post-produce it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, then you have ability to actually influence other countries because there is nothing difficult about what we're trying to do. People think it's expensive. It isn't. The reason why fossil fuels at this moment in time seem to be cheaper than renewables. Because of subsidies. Subsidies. Yeah. Now, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has calculated that with the climate change damage put in, we are talking about $5 trillion of subsidies per year. Okay? Now, that's twice the GDP of the United Kingdom, which is the fifth largest economy in the world. Okay? So that's a huge amount. Now, the reason being is not... And this is not, again, this is not actually due to neoliberalism. This is not actually due to all those private companies making huge amounts of money. It's actually about state-owned companies. So the interesting thing is, if you look at the top 25 fossil fuel companies in the world, 19 of them are fully or part-owned by a country. And those, of course, get huge tax, tax subsidies. They get huge uh, tax breaks and subsidies and all of that to allow them to produce fossil fuels as cheaply as possible. So what we need to do is actually make sure those countries are forced 
to reduce those subsidies to actually make uh, renewable energy much more uh, effective. And so the interesting thing is that I'm coming to this point whereby actually, even though I sort of like complain about neoliberalism in some points, however, actually in this case, it's, it's state-owned companies which are getting unfair advantages, which are skewing the whole market, which means that our green and clean tech isn't getting the opportunities they want. You've, you've clearly thought a lot about this. Are you, are you thinking about running for office at all? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure at the moment. I, I have the right rhetoric. So um, yeah. I, I think if I waved the flag and said, I'm sorry, we, we must leave Europe, um, I, I'd probably get a job tomorrow. So. Right, well, that's a whole, whole other issue. But it's, um, you, you've obviously you have a very measured and comprehensive response. Um, Normally, I when think, I ask people I think, what they would do if they were in charge, they're somewhat taken aback. But you were you were ready to go. You haven't. You you you've clearly given us a lot of thought. Many years ago, um, I will. I I done a lot of work with arts groups and uh, with the creative uh, industries on, in looking at how to discuss climate change and sustainability issues. And it's beautiful how, of course, scientists have this certain way of talking which doesn't actually inspire you, doesn't actually... Whereas a painting or a statue or a film can just blow people's minds. So very interesting, this overlap. But at one of these events, which was just Q&A like this, one of the people said, OK, what happens, um, what happens if you're in charge of a, a small African country? What would you do? My instant response is, right, OK, so I've got a poor country. Um, now, I'm pretty sure I've got some coal reserves in my country, okay? I'm just going to assume that. Right, I'm going to have a carbon-based uh, power system. I'm going to build uh, coal-fired power stations as quick as possible to produce cheap electricity for my country to lift my country out of poverty. And they looked at me and went, but what about climate change? Well, you didn't ask me about that. You asked me what I do for my people, for my small African country, because I'm now the dictator. I'm making sure that they're fine and safe. At which point they went, ah, and I went, yes. That is the problem, because if you ask about a particular solution, that may not be the same as the one you're looking for for climate change. And it does worry me that a lot of climate change scientists only see climate change mm. as the issue, whereas actually, as a geographer, there are so many other issues that we have to deal with. And the thing is, I'm optimistic, because in the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, we had to deal with huge problems of lack of representation, uh, small countries being sort of like just swallowed whenever, at uh, the end of colonialism, and massive wars. Post-Second World War, at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1949... Uh, 44, but 44, it doesn't, doesn't, sorry, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, the, yeah, I should know that. Uh, at the Bretton Woods Conference <laughs> in 1944, they sat down, they brought out their desk drawer plans and said, this is the new world order. Yeah. So this is the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, set the dollar, which then produced an amazing increase in people's uh, longevity. We doubled the population. All the things that were problematic in the first half of the 20th century were fixed in the second half. Amazingly. I mean, just, just the amazing stuff that we've done in the second half of the 20th century. However, that's led to another set of problems poverty, inequality, environmental degradation, climate change, and security issues, which we now have to actually try to unpick and deal with in the first half of the 21st century. Sure. 
I would also argue that the Treaty of Rome and what later became the European Union um, did a lot to, uh, to promote peace and stability and that side of the world. Um, but let's not beat this to death. Which, uh, <laughs> which I have to say, the Remain campaign didn't ever discuss. Hmm. The whole idea... It was one of the single greatest accomplishments in the history of mankind, yes. but they kind of forgot about that one. And the ridiculous thing is, if you look at the voting patterns, the youth or the young people voted to stay, so they know their history, they knew the Europeans. If you look at the Scots, the Northern Irish, and the Londoners, they all did. What is interesting is it was disaffected people yeah. who have been told for the last 30 years by conservatives that their poverty is due to the... Guys in Brussels, yeah. Yes. Not due to austerity, not due to removal of their uh, sort of uh, grants or their sort of uh, uh, benefits by this current government. Yeah. Again, I fear we, we, <laughs> agree, too, we agree too much <laughs> yes. to, to, uh, uh, yes. on this point. Um, let, me, let me suggest a, another idea or, or thought that people might have and get mm -hmm. your response to it. So we talked about people who uh, I would say don't have a sufficient understanding of the rational principles of science. Uh, there are other ways of putting it. They, have, they look at it as a belief system, mm -hmm. as you've said. They, they elect not to believe it. They're too swayed by their own uh, politics or personal views or what have you. But then there are people who have a rather different approach, who have perhaps almost too much faith that say, yes, well, whatever we do, whatever mess we make of things, I'm not too worried because those clever scientists are going to find a way around it. They're mm -hmm. going to just be able to geoengineer everything. And, and so it doesn't really matter. We can carry on as business as usual. And when things get too tough, the scientists will find a clever way to get us out of this. How would you respond to those people? So for me, this is why the, even the discussion of the Anthropocene is really important. Because for me, what has happened is, and it's, it's our own fault, so climate scientists have got uh, louder, more insistent over the last 25 years about climate change because they felt that nobody's listening. So they keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Unfortunately, what that's done is allowed other things that are happening that humans are creating or destroying to be missed. So again, the loss, huge loss of biodiversity is incredible. Um, the amount of deforestation, the amount of changes in natural habitats, um, our alteration of even the nitrogen cycle, because at the moment, half the nitrogen fixed from the atmosphere is fixed by us to make fertilizers to produce food. So all of these things which show that our impact on the planet is much wider than just changing the climate have been missed. So this is why I'm really excited about the discussion about the Anthropocene, because by saying to people, look guys, we are a geological superpower, okay? And again, I'm happy to ha put my hand up and say, look, look, for the last 500 years, scientists have basically made you feel really insignificant. Uh, I'm really sorry about that, because it's true. So if you go back, so you know, good old Copernicus went, yeah, guess what? <sighs> yeah, you know, the Earth isn't the center of the universe. Actually, it's the sun. We then go to these uh, cosmologists now that say, well, actually, yeah, our sun is just a really small, insignificant star. It's one of 10 to the power of 24 in just our universe. And there's multi-universes. And we go, oh. 
Okay, so our star's not very trendy and we're very small, okay. And then, of course, the biologist, not to be outdone, you had Darwin going, yeah, you know, you're special. There you have, you have sort of like, you have animals, you have angels, we're in between. Well, men are, okay. So, Darwin comes along, yeah, no, actually, we're just, uh, uh, we're just an ape, but it lost its tail and a bit smarter. Ah, so, we have all of this. So, for the last 500 years... Science without meaning to has made individual humans feel quite small, insignificant. It's a big, dangerous, nasty universe out there, and we're just part of nature, and we're just evolved, okay? However, the Anthropocene says, well, hang on. Collectively, as 7 billion, 7.5 billion of us nearly, um, we're actually the most important thing on this planet, which is the only planet where we know life exists in the whole universe, and we control its destiny. Ah. At that point, we should go, okay, what sort of future do we want for this planet? And, um, and people are now even talking about bad Anthropocene, good Anthropocene, and talking about different futures that we collectively can imagine for the future, whether we actually are custodians of this planet, make sure that we keep everything uh, as, as nice as possible for all of us, which means that we actually look after all of us and the planet, or do we just have business as usual and we keep going as we are because, well, that's just what we are because that's how we've known before. And so, therefore, I think, for me, the big thing is we now hit, in the early 21st century, that dichotomy, that choice of which direction to go. The big problem is how do you organise 7.5 billion people who are used to working in group sizes, because of our brain, about 150. How do you make that step up from a small tribal creature, which we are, to a mega creature that actually covers the whole planet? And I think that's the challenge that uh, we're going to have this century. So we talked about some reasons for pessimism, but it seems to me there are also some reasons for optimism. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the scope of the challenge, uh, or at least aspects of the scope of the challenge. Um, perhaps one optimistic data point is what happened fairly recently, namely uh, the Paris Accords mm -hmm. that were signed, and also the formal agreement between President Obama and mm -hmm. President Xi Jinping to ratify those yep. those particular accords. Does that give you some sense of optimism yourself? Do you think, oh well, maybe there is a possibility for a good Anthropocene, um, and we can we can get there as a as a global society? So for me, I think Paris was absolutely essential. It was key that it had to work, particularly as, of course. In 2009, Copenhagen completely failed. And the levels of expectation and optimism for Copenhagen was so high that this basically just shattered the whole of the negotiations, which then spent a number of years building it up. Now, the key thing about Paris, I have to say, is you have to give credit to the French. Okay? I know that sounds fairly difficult as a Brit Not to do that. Me, no. I don't know. It's very difficult. <laughs> But what they were able to do was diplomatically make countries discuss things and actually come to an agreement. 
Or even if they didn't come to agreement, they got told that they had come to an agreement and then realised that they couldn't actually turn around and say, no, we didn't agree to this. So very interesting politics played mm. there by, and colleagues of mine were in the heart of this, seeing this going. And it wasn't necessarily the French themselves would do it, but they would get someone else president to phone up, somebody else's president to start the ball moving. Mm. And so, again, it's a watershed because what it says is, all the leaders of the world, including Saudi Arabia, including uh, um, the United States, see climate change as a problem and that's something must be done. Now, the pledges that have been made for uh, Paris aren't nearly enough to get us to two degrees, but it's the first time we have real global acknowledgement. Yeah. And also, we have an aim, so which is the two degree target. Now, that's a completely politically made up aim. Uh, doesn't necessarily have any logic within science because if you happen to live in a small island state, uh, say Tuvalu in the middle of the Pacific, guess what? Two degrees means your whole country's gonna be flooded. So it's artificial, but it gives politicians and people something to look at, aim for, to know whether we're actually doing something good or bad. What we do need to do, however, I think is Underneath that, we need to change economics. And I don't necessarily mean economics as in the day-to-day -day exchange of money, but how we actually teach economics. So the big problem is that economics is the gold standard. So at the actual negotiations, we know that the people we have to get to aren't the actual environment ministers, it's the finance ministers, because they're the ones looking at the bottom uh, dollar and basically working out whether they can actually afford Paris or not, because they're looking at different stats. So one of the interesting things that people have done, and this is where we were involved at UCL in looking at health and climate change, is because one of the big costs for every single country is healthcare. So in the UK, we spend about 10% of GDP on healthcare. Interestingly enough, the USA is 17% of their GDP on healthcare. So it's a huge thing. So if you can get to the health people and say, look, this is what's going to happen with climate change. This is going to increase your health care cost spendings. This is going to cause this problem, this problem. These diseases are going to spread out. They then go to the finance minister and go, do you know how much extra this is going to cost me in 10, 20, 30? That then gets the finance person worried who then starts. And so I think at the moment what we're here hearing is the change in economics, the idea that the old classical economic models don't actually work and we do need new economics. However, it's just getting um, the economics departments of every university in the world to actually move into the 21st century is difficult and problematic. For some reason, unlike science departments, they don't seem to learn and uh, They're evolve. very good at retrodiction. You have to give them that. Yes, they're, they're, they are. They're extremely good at predicting the past. Yes. <laughs> and again, I have no problem with them getting the future wrong because it's very difficult to predict people in the future. But their underlying principles, i.e. everybody's rational, everybody makes these decisions based on cost-benefit analysis, just doesn't work in the real world. And I think we need realistic economics mm. for the 21st century so we can make realistic choices. And the other thing that always frustrates me is, of course, all the natural environment is never costed in. It's a freebie. Mm. It's a freebie, even though now they are saying, well, actually, climate change damage, perhaps we have to 
bring in somehow. And this is where Nick Stern's report was absolutely amazing. Because what he said was, look, you do it now, it costs you 1% or 2% of world GDP to fix climate change. Okay? Yeah, you leave it for uh, to the middle of the century, it's going to cost you 20% of world GDP, possibly more. Which one do you want? Now, economists complained that he didn't do a discount because he basically said, actually, a, uh, a pound now or a dollar now is worth the same in the future. It's not going to be less worth less or worth more in the future. So, actually, you need to be, bear that into mind. So, he said, so fine, morally, the future and today cost the same. Right, now, what are you going to do? And that was instrumental. That did change a lot of people's thinking about climate change. Going, yeah, perhaps we can change things now. And the other thing I always get frustrated about is that whenever I meet the top business leaders in any country, what is always amazing is the one thing they want is regulation, consistent regulation. Because they always turn around to me and they say, look, Mark, I'm really good at what I do. I can make money all the time, okay? As long as the rules stay the same, okay? What they also dislike is if Joe blogs down the road, is allowed to get away with it, and is actually not following these rules, and therefore making more money than them because they're not being sort of caught out, they get really frustrated by that. So they want a level playing field, they want environmental regulation, they don't mind, that's fine, and they don't mind what the regulations are long as they are consistent and applied across the board so people are caught out who are trying to cheat it. And guess what? The best of the best businesses will always make huge amounts of money mm. because that's what they're good at. But politicians don't see that. They don't understand that. But it's, it, it seems as if the tide, there are signs, straws in the wind, that the tide is starting to change. And it's refreshing what you said about the finance ministers being lobbied by or having pressure put on them by health mm -hmm. advocates and so forth. Yep. Because when people start looking at this as an important issue financially, yep. um, at least from a government perspective, I think the chances that something coherent and comprehensive being done are much higher. Mm -hmm. uh, I have much more faith in that than I do of whether academic economists get their house in order and get their models corrected. Because <laughs> it's never clear yeah, to yeah. me that they actually have any real effect at, yeah. and anywhere outside of economics departments. But that's, that's a whole other issue. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Before we conclude, I just have one more question, which is um, a little different than the tenor of this conversation. Because normally when I talk to a scientist, I ask him or her if, I ask him or her what specific questions they would most like answered if I were God, if I were an omniscient being, and they could ask me a question and I would answer. We've talked a lot about mm -hmm. policy. We've talked, we talked about economics. We talked about sociology. You, you gave me um, a summary of, of our understanding mm -hmm. of, of climate. We didn't talk about your work in evolution. We didn't talk about your work on... Um, uh, stability of continental slopes. We didn't mm -hmm. talk about we didn't talk about any of that stuff. All the things I fiddle with, yes. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure a, a lot more um, besides. Um, so it's quite conceivable that the answer to those questions will have nothing to do with the prior discussion we've just had.
but if I were God mm -hmm. and I could answer any question, scientific or otherwise, okay. that you might have, uh, what might you ask me? So my fascination is at the moment with human evolution. So I have a, a book coming out next year, 1st of January, called The Cradle of Humanity, which is puts together all of my knowledge about human evolution, from the bones to the climate, the tectonics, and putting it all together in a coherent story, and ends up with the Anthropocene. But the one bit in there, which I, which I discuss a lot, but we have no real answers for, is our species, Homo sapiens, emerged from Africa, probably from Homo erectus, about 200,000 years ago. They walked out of Africa, and they slowly made it to China, they made it into Europe, they made it even down to sort of um, uh, Australia. But didn't do anything special. Just populated. Okay? So there's nothing special there about our species. For about 100,000 years. And then there's about 100,000 years ago, there, there's a few beads that turn up, there's a few sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, sh uh, shell engravings, etc. Okay, a bit of art. Not much. Then 50,000 years ago, something changes. We get these beautiful artworks in France, in Switzerland, in Indonesia. We get these beautiful figurines that you can find in Germany and in sort of uh, uh, former Yugoslavia. Beautiful pieces. And suddenly, culture seems to be born and takes off. And for me, the question I'd ask you, if you were the omnipotent one, is what changed there? So at the moment, we think that we probably self-domesticated. There seems to be suggestions that males, particularly um, their eyebrow ridges uh, retreated, they got shorter faces, their finger lengths, uh, the digits actually sort of got more equal, all of which suggests there's a lot less testosterone in their bodies, okay? Which means they're less reactively violent, okay? That doesn't stop humans being violent, because as a group, humans can be sure. incredibly violent, which is important, but individually. So again, you and I bumping into each other, we would probably go, oh, sorry, instead of trying to kill each other. So that changes about 50,000 years ago, we think, and that seems to be domestication, which then allows us to build culture to then learn and have a cumulative culture, because it's no good someone inventing um, a, a new way of painting or a new weapon. And someone else has to do it, the next generation. Yes, because it only, that spark. So being able to teach and being able to pass things on from generation to generation is what defines us as a species. And you find that knowledge then has been accelerating like this because we're getting better and better at passing that knowledge on to complete and utter strangers. And so for me, the question would be, what happened? Why, after 150,000 years of Homo sapiens running around, did it change then? Because there was no climatological reason. Some people suggest there's a new wave of Homo sapiens that come out of Africa. If so, what happened in East Africa 50,000 to 60,000 years ago that made us more of a team player, more culturally attenuated? And it seemed to have happened everywhere simultaneously, roughly, as you were saying, right? Or, or is that not correct? Well, the interesting papers that have come out, so genetics now is changing all of our views of recent evolution, which is, there's some amazing stuff coming out. 
what it looks like is there's a first wave of Homo sapiens that came out of mm. Africa about 100, 120,000 years ago, all the way to China. We know there's some teeth there about 100,000 years ago. However, there is then another wave that comes out somewhere between 80 and 60,000 years out of Africa. And the genetics says that they replaced everybody else. So that is the wave that we're related to. And the interesting thing is then the genetics shows that actually all of us are related to that wave out of Africa, not the earlier one. Okay. But then, then as you say, that just puts the question back to what is it what about happened, those people? What happened at that, that area that meant that those people, and why did that then give them a major advantage over previous humans? Hmm. So yes, that would be, which is of course completely nothing to do with climate change. Though I'd probably argue that some of my stuff about human evolution is that the reason why we have a big brain is because we had to learn how to deal with really rapidly changing conditions in East Africa. And so even our genesis is actually due to climate change. So it's possible that the mess that we make for ourselves will put more evolutionary pressure on us to getting smarter still. <laughs> <laughs> smarter. Well, what, what, again, you say that. What is really interesting is studies of chimpanzees show that most of their behavior is hardwired in. Okay, so it's, it's already in the genetics, it's in the brain, hardwired in. With humans, actually not much of our behavior is actually hardwired in, which means as soon as you're born, the environment and society you're born into have a huge input into the way you think, mm. how you actually interact. I think this is also why we never understand our children, because they have completely different influences. Okay, So they are, I reckon, every generation is a different species. So of course, we are struggling with this whole idea, how the hell do we interact with all these people, with all these uh, 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 sort of communication devices, etc. If you look at my children, they have no problem because that, they've been born into this. I mean, again, my children have no idea of a world without Google. I mean, it's like, it was, um, they can't imagine not being able to Google stuff and things like that. And so they have a completely different brain patterns to us and how they think which then perhaps they have solutions for the 21st century that us oldies don't necessarily have. And then their generation will have a different... So again, that for me is the most exciting things about humans is because our brain is so adaptable and can change with every single generation. We don't have to wait for hard evolutionary changes to occur. We have that brain that's so adaptable, it will change with every generation. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to speak more of that we've provided? We've gone in all sorts of different directions. I was going to say, sorry, I, I should have warned you that, that, that no, my, no. My, my sort of conversations just go off. That's, um, that's perfectly acceptable. It's, it's, it's more than acceptable. It's, yep. it's, it's great. Um, no, I, yeah. I could talk a lot longer, but I don't want to keep you here for Well, I mean, it the, depends if, you, if you've got enough or if you, oh, yeah. want, if you oh, want to yeah. talk about other things. I'm happy to. I don't no, I think it's, 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 what, two hours, right? So. Yeah, it's about an hour fifty. Uh, 50, so Is there any other burning questions you have that you want to? There are no other burning questions. Uh, what what you were saying reminded me of a conversation I had with a neuroscientist who was talking about the propensity of humans, the remarkable propensity of humans that he believed is uh, fundamental to our neuronal structure to adapt and use tools. Mm -hmm. um, and this would explain why um, 
this would be one particular interpretation of this idea that every generation is remarkably different. In fact, it goes on even smaller timescales than that. Um, even the um, a very, very basic example of when you see a professional tennis player, mm -hmm. there's this idea that um, it's used metaphorically that, well, his racket is a continuation of his hand. And there have been all sorts of studies that yep. have actually shown that um, um, there is some neurophysiological truth to that statement, mm -hmm. um, depending on how one one does that. Um, so there, I guess, uh, one particular speculation, since we seem to be in big speculation time, is what is it about humans, human neurophysiology, or human physiology, or mm -hmm. humanity, or being human, that enables us to actually do that? I mean, it's one thing to point it out and say, my children don't uh, are remarkably adaptable. They just mm -hmm. knew about Google. Their children will know about Zoogle or Google or whatever the next thing is, and they'll be different people, and they'll yep. be able... And so our ability to solve problems isn't predicated upon evolutionary time and so yep. forth. But then the question is, well, that seems different than other species. Yep. And what is it that makes us different? So... I would argue, and I, I argue in the book, that the thing that makes us different is that we're an ultra-social creature. So the reason we have a very large brain, it's not using tools, okay? So uh, we know that uh, New England crows use tools, we know that chimpanzees use tools, so there are lots of creatures that use tools. We also now know, having just discovered uh, a couple of years back, stone tools dated at 3.3 million years, that's before Homo. So before this supposedly great increase in brain expansion, we were using stone tools. So our primitive uh, uh, sort of ancestors seem to be using tools. So it's not tools. What's actually important is the reason we have a huge brain is because we need to track social developments. So for example, the problem is that you and I are having a conversation. Now, I don't know you very well, you don't know me very well, so we basically have to have a one-to-one -one conversation where we're trying to think about what's their background, why they're asking that question, what's the reason for it. Okay, that's not too bad. You could probably get a computer to try and actually do a bit of that. However, Taylor, who's actually using the camera, suddenly throws in a question and you go, I'm going, hang on, I don't know him or him, but how do they, what is the relationship between these two, what's the problem, etc. And again, you might then turn around and go, oh, well, have you met so-and-so? How are they related to so-and-so? And that's when it starts to explode. And what I do in my lectures is I'm really mean. So I always pick on a student, usually who's late. So, of course, therefore, I'm the alpha male and I'm causing, I'm therefore punishing. Yeah, fine, simple. And then I turn around and say, okay, how do you like my lectures? At which point they go, <laughs> now, problem, because they don't want to appear weak, in front of their peers, but they so they might answer with a bit of humour. So they'll try and get out of it and go, I felt much better five minutes ago, or something like that, okay? And then go, oh, is that your friend saying this? Oh, yes. Do you like them? Oh, yes, that's a good answer. I go, all right. See the girl over there? Do you think she's attractive? So this at increasingly anxiety, okay? And then I turn around and say, do you think she and he would go out with each other? Which then increases... So, Again, what they're doing is they have to think of, one, what am I getting at? Two, 
what is the girl thinking? What is the boy thinking? They don't know them necessarily. How, what is their relationship? Are they actually going out? Are they not going out? Are they actually related? And then what are the other 150 people in the audience actually thinking of them as they're doing? And they have to do this in microseconds because they have to have a conversation with me because I'm forcing it because I'm actually higher in the social standing. That's the problem that we have as humans. And we spend a huge amount of time reassuring our social conditioning. Now, interesting fact, um, academics spend the most amount of time gossiping than any other profession. Mm. Again, because it's all about status. And of course, you can only do status by finding out what people think about you. And I always stress to the students, so the students can come in knowing quantum mechanics, they know differential equations, they know how to use a split infinitive, but what they don't realize is that people out there in the real world can hold the ethical or moral dilemmas of five or six soap operas in their head. They might miss it for a few weeks, they come straight in, watch a couple of episodes, and they know exactly who is sleeping with who and doing what, etc. That's why they have such a large brain. And so I turn around to the students and go, well, look, you may think you're slightly smarter than them, but actually, that's their basis, and that's why they're so smart. Mm. So that's why I think that we have a very large brain. But again, how do you move that up to a much larger size than just the 150? Because it's about 150. So lots of experiments have been done about how many people we actually know. Right quite intimately, and that's about 150, and then it goes, you get different, and the problem is when you get beyond that, you start having to drop down into stereotypes, because that's the only, you've got a caricature of people to actually then deal with. That's interesting for two reasons, it's a, it's a fascinating experiment, but I'm amazed that it doesn't wreak havoc with your teacher evaluations. So, <laughs> <laughs> but at, at any rate, Mark, it's been a fascinating conversation, thank Pleasure. you very much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Anthropology and Sociology, along with separate discussions with Joseph Curtin, Fred Gittleman, Ian Stewart, and Franz Duval. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.